Hello, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the January 18th, 2021 edition of Digging Out. Originally, this program intended to offer means for getting us through November 3rd, December 3rd, and January 3rd, 2021. Now we have an even taller order of getting past January 6th. We're here collectively to clear the debris from the last four days, the last four weeks, not to mention the last four years. For today's show, Kevin O'Leary, writer and political science faculty member at Chapman University, will draw some lines from the Orange County activists to the melee of a coup perpetrated on the nation's capital January 6th. Kevin O'Leary is a fellow at the Center for the Study of Democracy at UC Irvine and an adjunct professor at Chapman University's political science department and previously taught at UCLA and the Claremont Colleges. As a journalist, Kevin's publications include his critically acclaimed book, Saving Democracy, A Plan for Real Representation in America, as well as his latest book that was out last September, Madison's Sorrow, Today's War on the Founders and America's Liberal Ideal. And we'll talk about that book today. As a journalist, he's also contributed to The American Prospect, Time Magazine, The Los Angeles Times, The Pasadena Star News, and its sister papers, and was editor of the Orange County Metro Magazine. Kevin joins me from his home in Irvine. Welcome to Digging Out, Kevin O'Leary. Well, thank you very much, Claudia. Glad to be here. Well, what, Kevin O'Leary, do you call the phenomenon that took place, that opened up, that exploded on January 6, 2021? Well, I think I take it a little differently than some people I see us in the midst of a reactionary revolution in the sense that since Gingrich took power back in the 90s in the House, the Republican Party has continued to move to the right. And in a classic understanding of a revolution, the moderates start things off and then it gets more radical and then the radicals get outflanked. This is key. The radicals get outflanked by people who are more radical than they could be. And if you think of um, modern Republican politics, Reagan, you know, the Reagan revolution back in the 80s, and the idea of kind of trying to do smaller government and this kind of modern understanding of the Republican Party. But Reagan was a pragmatist, and he was not ideologically fully on the right, whereas Gingrich was. And then what's really important is a lot of people in the Capitol right now taking votes on impeachment on the Republican side. The new thing is that they're afraid of their followers, but they've also always been afraid of being primaried from the right. And that happened to Eric Cantor was number two to John Boehner. And he looked like he was going to be Speaker of the House. And then he was primaried by an obscure academic named Bart, who's been defeated since. And, you know, Cantor was out and, you know, just shivers of fear went up all of the Republicans in Congress, both in the House and the Senate, and they said, oh my God, I've got to be so careful. So even the people like, you know, Senator Coke, Coke Corker that, that's retired, you know, and even McCain, when he had to run for reelection, they kind of had to straddle more right-wing views than they really wanted to in order to get elected. Um, and it's just, that's colored where we are as a country for quite a while, and it's just unclear how it's going to settle down. And that has helped Trump a lot as he's pushed along here. So when I look at this, 
I think we are in the midst of a reaction or revolution compressed into, you know, a span of 10 or 20 years. With what happened at the Capitol, maybe we've hit the climax, maybe we haven't. But when Trump rode down the, the elevator famously and took over the Republican Party, we've entered in, metaphorically the reign of terror in the sense that every liberal premise and every liberal value and all the institutions of constitutional democracy have been threatened by President Trump because he's acted for years, you know, from the very start, but especially about a year in with the border crisis as an elected authoritarian. And this is not a new, you know, a lot of people see this because he, he doesn't really seem to understand what it takes with democracy. And, and the crazy thing now is he's got a lot of his followers thinking that, yeah, you didn't win the election the election was stolen, which is a little bit crazy in the sense that most people know that Trump lies as easily as taking a, a drink of water. So the fact that he might lie about the election should occur to people, but maybe it hasn't on the right. The further thing in thinking about this is to say that American politics classically has been broken into kind of arguments between liberals and conservatives. But what's different about America is that traditionally, is that our two political parties, in a deep philosophic sense, embraced the same values. Now, the founders of this country wanted to flee Europe, and they wanted to flee the values of an aristocratic feudal society, and those values were privilege, hierarchy, radical inequality, and exclusion. Well, the democracy that Tocqueville famously celebrated in Democracy in America was about the North and the West, and an embracing of democracy, equality, and liberty all together and the idea that you could have a middle-class society. There was one piece of American politics that didn't buy into that. That was the Old South. The Old South turned back toward Europe and developed a feudal type society with slaves and a caste type mentality that was authoritarian. And when the South lost the Civil War, they kept power. But the problem with the Civil War was that the, the planter class never lost their plantations. They just switched the way they did the economy to sharecropping. They kept power for the next hundred years, all the way to when John Lewis crossed the Pettus Bridge. And so that mentality, not just racism, but a, an acceptance of authoritarianism has been in the American bloodstream for some people. You know, there's a segment of the population that have said, well, if Trump wants to say he doesn't like Congress, and get rid of Congress. There's good polls about this. Oh, we don't need Congress. We just, we just want to you know, worship the leader, capital L. And that's really authoritarian. And so instead, of, in, our politics are now divided into three. We have liberals. We have conservatives, traditional conservatives, Reagan-type conservatives, Edmund Burke-type conservatives who, in the Burkean sense, believe in government, know that national government's important, believe in slower change than liberals, believe in tradition, well, the Constitution and the Declaration are our traditions. And from Alexander Hamilton on through to Bob Dole to John McCain, there's been great American conservatives and they've been able to talk and negotiate and compromise and work with liberals, even though they didn't agree with liberals on how to get things done. They had similar values. But there's a piece of American politics that flares up once in a while, and it's illiberal, and it's reactionary. And that's what we need to call what happened on the Capitol on January 6th. And that's what Trump represents. 
And it's this um, illiberal tendency that came with the succession, secession with the Civil War. And it was championed also by the robber barons in the progressive era, and then beaten back or pushed back by the progressive reform presidents, Teddy Roosevelt, the Republican, Woodrow Wilson, and especially Franklin Roosevelt. And following that, we had a great middle-class society. So when people talk about make American great again, they look back to Eisenhower, taxes were high. He actually did uh, keep track of money. Um, he was careful about the budgets, but he spent money when he wanted to, like the, the freeway system across the country. So what's happened now is that the Republican Party has increasingly, since Gingrich, been taken over among its elected officials by people who actually embrace the values of the old world. Think about that. They embrace a society built on the idea of privilege, hierarchy, radical inequality, and exclusion, which is what old Europe was about. And they, that way, in that sense, it goes against what Madison and Hamilton and Jefferson were trying to do at the start of the country. Because there's a straight line from the founding fathers through Lincoln, through the progressive presidents, all the way to President Obama. And a person like John McCain basically agreed with how we were trying to approach things. And the first George Bush, especially, was trying to, to do that as well. And with the Trumpian effect, that's been pushed to the side. You know, fears about cosmopolitanism and has been married. And the key move in all this way back in time now was when George Wallace did a famous speech. He was becoming governor of Alabama and he took the oath and he talked about segregation now, segregation yes. forever. That's the line people remember. Right. What he did was he knew he couldn't sell explicit racial rage and racial belittling like the old demagogues had done to the American public. So he sublimated racial rage into the hatred of government. And when he did that, he linked the Barry Goldwaters of the world and the William Buckleys and the F.A. Hayek's who wanted minimal government above all else, kind of like the 1890s of just having a national government based on the post office. And he sets up a straight line toward Rush Limbaugh and the, and the right wing on cable news and the right wing politicians that follow Gingrich. Marrying an acceptance of racial inequality and sometimes embracing that in a really nasty way as, a, as a, the right-wing alt-right fringe, along with a, a severe idea about national government it is you don't need it and you know we should have low taxes and low regulations. And there's millions of conservatives in the population, but they don't have a voice in Capitol Hill and in the, many of the capitals across the country. And the donor class has bought into this, the Koch brothers and those types funding this. Uh, they may have doubts now with what happened, but they funded it all along. And then Trump was able to outflank all his rivals in 2016, and he solidified all this stuff. So now we're in a big, difficult situation with President Biden coming in because it's really hard for liberals to negotiate with reactionaries and to get something done. And that's why the title of my book is called Madison's Sorrow. Obviously, the founders would be horrified at what happened during most of the Trump presidency, and especially with the sacking of the Capitol. But they're also horrified because, you know, we should- The succession hard. was it's broken. Hard. It's hard for Madisonian-type style government to work when one party has marched to the extreme. 
the obverse of this would be if, if there was really a Marxist-Leninist left, which has never existed in America, and you had conservatives like McCain trying to deal with Leninist types, that would be impossible too. But we've got the reverse. The right has always been a threat to American freedom, and it's busted out in balloon right now, and, and we're trying to figure out how to deal with that. For those of you who just joined us, my guest is Kevin O'Leary. He's a writer, a member of the faculty at Chapman University, and his recent book out that is a very good platform for people to get a better understanding outside of the interview is entitled Madison's Sorrow, Today's War on the Founders and America's Liberal Ideal. And I'm trying to use that as the historic context. So we're going to talk about now what transpired in Washington, DC. I want to draw a line from the participants that came from Orange County at that insurrection of sorts. And so just very briefly, where then George Wallace, or was it in the Civil War where the zero sum got baked into the American body politic that would split a progressive ideals from conservative ideals? Well, it was, it was more post New Deal because what happened was there always been this kind of laissez-faire mentality among the Republican Party. And then the Great Depression just blew that apart. It's like, oh, we need government to get out of this mess. And FDR did such a brilliant job with a light touch. I mean, a lot of his stuff was kind of delicate in terms of setting up regulations for Wall Street. And he said, yes, before the Great Depression, hardly anybody bought a home because they couldn't afford it because mortgages were only five years. The brain trust whiz kids that worked for FDR figured out, well, why don't we have 30-year mortgages? And that created the housing industry and middle-class suburbs. And it was, it was like a, a government program, but it wasn't- a Stimulus package, oh, yeah. It was, it was just setting up the regulations and how the banking would be. And then you're a capitalist, go for it. So the New Deal was very successful, but there were some people on the right that hated it. Bill Buckley's father, for example, and the Koch brothers' father. And they set about trying to undermine it. That's where the zero sum came in. With, with Hayek, a guy that wrote, the famous economist who wrote a book called the road to serfdom, he set up a false choice. He said you could either have minimal government like 1890s government, or if you had a New Deal type government, he said you would inevitably become totalitarian, either like Hitler's Germany or the Soviet Union. That was just wrong because we've had 70 years experience since then. And Sweden hasn't done that. France hasn't done that. Great Britain hasn't done that. Germany hasn't done that. Canada to our north hasn't done that. And there is a middle path. And Hayek's ideas are still important, even though this book was written in the 1940s, because his idea about you can't have a large national government, is too dangerous. That's one of the key ideas behind climate denial. So his influence is still insidious. And that's when you got this, this kind of no government idea. Now, Reagan knew Hayek, but you know, he still did tax increases, right? He, he did his best as he could, but he wasn't a true believer. You know, he was more of a pragmatist. But the people that came after him became more of a zealot mentality. And that is a difference in American politics. Our politics works well when we understand other people may have different beliefs than us, but we respect them. When Gingrich got power in the 90s, he taught people to hate the other side. And he called the other side evil and villainized it. 
And that changed Capitol Hill and we're still in that mentality. And then people get caught up online and they're frustrated and they start reading stuff and it's partially not knowing enough and partially being susceptible. So some good people sometimes get sucked in and, and, and start believing stuff they shouldn't. Well, and that's, I want to use that analogy though. You, you're talking about setting yeah. aside. Mm -hmm. And I think instead of setting aside that in that body politic, it was drowned out so that there wasn't enough kind of a sort of a tempered conversation about this. So that that right. drowning out was perfect for when there mm -hmm. would be the cybersphere that would allow for echo chambers to drown out everything, you know, in, in every possible way. So I want to bring us to Orange County then you're talking about the lack of civility, the lack of civic understanding, and the denial that Hayek set up the climate denial. Well, then there was the pandemic denial. There yeah. was denial. Yeah, it, was of like a, it, it was more than President Trump saying, I don't believe it's there. And politically, it's bad for me. It was partially that the, that the Republican right had for years built mistrust and itself didn't trust the national government to do anything. You can imagine Lyndon Johnson or Harry Hopkins under FDR, they would have had the pandemic, they would have strangled it in its first three months because they would have jumped all over it with a national Well, response. and that is what was happening. Yeah. I want to sort of hasten to the, the, the local aspect. Yes. That very kind of skepticism was on display before the Board of Supervisors, who were a very diffident governmental entity managing the pandemic in Orange County. And this crowd that you're talking, the hordes, they were all skeptics of a non-performing board of supervisors. So these are the people that were continuing their organizing with each other, developing tremendous networks. And it was those, there's a direct through line from those that were testifying before the County Board of Supervisors and shredding a group that wasn't doing anything anyway. They just represented government, but they weren't activating. And uh -huh. those are people that showed up in the Capitol Rotunda on January 6th. They were people that were showing up to defy the California Senate Bill 54 to create sanctuary cities, a reaction to all the travel bans in the early part of the Trump administration. So they were very much in the faces of the city councils in 2017, they showed up in some of these other forms and they were there in January 6th in Washington, DC. And I, I wanted to talk about that. Yeah. We also now have entities from August educational institutions. We have the Professor Eastman at Chapman University. We have Peter Navarro from UC Irvine School of Management saying nutcase things. And I, did it surprise you that John Eastman was first going to discredit the birthright of the vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris and Peter Navarro, who's been ramping up to right up to this moment. I need to say we are recording this interview on January 15th. So I want you to talk about the platform these two academics came from that were creating a lot of difficulties for civic responsibility and civic educations to take place in the two largest universities in Orange County of populated of over 3 million people. Yeah, first thing I'll say is about the sanctuary city, that, that's been a hot button. I mean, politics often works on fear and the, the challenge is that Edmund Burke talked about prejudice 
in a way we don't understand that word. He, he thought it was like sometimes a good thing. It meant emotion. It meant tapping into emotions. President Trump has been an old-fashioned demagogue, like before George Wallace type. Those demagogues would belittle and, and make the whites in the South hate blacks, blame everything on them. What Trump did was he generalized the target list to women, to immigrants, to- The other was huge. Anybody that wasn't a white guy, basically. And so he tapped into that. And people are complicated. Many of us have different ways we can respond to things and, and different identities. But Trump was able to, to tap into that fear of the other about immigration. You know, and, and some people respond to that. So that, that becomes, they become very passionate about it. And so, you know, they got caught up and they went to Washington and they listened to Trump and they marched down. And, you know, I, I would suspect that some of them that marched to the Capitol wanted to rally around and others really wanted to, you know, they were in on the game and wanted to attack the Capitol. But I bet that there's a good portion of the crowd that was kind of like surprised at what happened and all of a sudden they're caught up in the moment kind of thing. Had these, to turn their strollers and go the other direction. Right, it's kind of like a mob mentality. It, it takes you over. I mean, this is the reverse of the Bastille, right? The Bastille started the French Revolution and people assaulted the, the it, was a, it was a prison with very few prisoners, but there was supposed to be gunpowder and they needed gunpowder to protect themselves because they thought they were going to be attacked by the, the king's army. And in this case, you know, it's, it's like American citizens attacking the, the citadel of, of democracy. It, it's crazy. It's, it highlights that we are in a reactionary revolution. Well, they were after the, the, the box that held the certified yeah, it was documents. All, they, were, right. they knew exactly where they were going. They well, had, and, and, there's and a the, lot of tactical aspects. To right. That. And the, the blame to this has to go far beyond the people in the crowd. It goes partially to people like Professor Eastman. It goes to many of the Republicans, especially the House Republicans and the secretaries of state who brought the lawsuit against Pennsylvania and the people that said that the election wasn't honest. I mean, we understood that Trump wasn't going to accept this, but you would have thought after a few days that the Republicans would have stood up. So there's a lot of blame on people like Mitch McConnell's shoulders. I mean, he finally did the right thing if he had walked up with other senior Senate Republicans, especially, and told Mr. Trump it's over back in November, like a week, at, let, let Trump have his wounds. He's kind of acts like a little kid. But a week after the election, if they had done that, we wouldn't be in this mess. And on McConnell's shoulders, his election in Georgia, he might have won that election. So, you know, he might have uh, been uh, hoisted on his own like, uh, you know, petard on that. On the two professors, ambition gets the best of people sometimes. And when people become radicalized, either on the left or the right, some people just have a radical personality. I mean, people who were leftists in the 30s, some of them ended up on the far right later on. John Eastman at Chapman, you know, he defended, as I understand, he defended um, Erwin Chemerinsky's appointment as dean at UCI because they respected each other, but even though they see the constitutional law quite differently. Oh, I forgot um, about that. Yeah. But I don't know much about Eastman and why he was up there with Giuliani, but the fact that he was supporting the lawsuit and at this rally, he, he got caught up with it. And he's, you know, it's a, it's a Saurian to a, otherwise was a, a very strong academic career. But he, he already had just tried to discredit Kamala Harris's. Yeah, and then that just gets in. There's this horrible, horrible racist part of 
you know, here's, here's the thing. If you want to understand what's happening in American politics, it's this. The two worst parts of, um, of the American political psyche are Southern racism, which now is racism across the country, and this severe libertarian anti-government strain that says big government is terrible. It, it, it will lead to totalitarianism. Those two things were in different political parties. So for most of American history, the white South was in one party and the right wing, not the business class as a whole, but the right wing of the business class was in a different party, the Republican party. The Republican party back in the 60s, early 60s was a broad tent party like most American political parties are. But when the civil rights acts happened in the middle 60s, right, the Voting Rights Act too, and civil rights was successful, Blacks joined the Democratic Party and white Southerners gradually and then you know, more and more joined the Republican Party. But it wasn't just the Southern strategy of Nixon and, and Reagan. It was also that the South saw that as the right thing to do for them. Here's the deal. When those two pieces, when the, when the, the hardcore libertarian right-wing Koch brother types joined forces with the Southern white racists, um, or let's call them unreconstructed unre whites, when they joined forces, they overwhelmed the traditional conservatives. They overwhelmed the moderates. It took a while. But, you know, if you go back to the Nixon impeachment days and the people who are on the Republican side and go up to Bob Dole and go up to John McCain, John McCain's like the last conservative. I mean, Romney's there, but there's hardly any left. Um, they've just been outflanked. And so it's it's not people individually sometimes, but it's the mentality of the party as a whole. And the checkbook. become more and more intolerant and it's been more based on kind of this white privilege. It's standing up for white America. Obviously the slogan, you know, make America great again is talking about make America white again. And so the racism that Eastman's done, the saga at the end of his career about Kamala Harris is despicable. And in the you know, when politics is more normal, quote, normal, that stuff is under a rock. But when Mr. Trump with Charlottesville famously that, that you know, President-elect Biden says that was the key moment for him, when Trump would not call out the KKK and the anti-Semites that were marching in daylight down there with tiki flags and surrounding a statue of Thomas Jefferson, for God's sakes. All bets were off. He was talking to those people. And so they joined in. So, you know, it's not a huge number of voters, but it's a cluster of voters that were apolitical before they came into the Republican Party. But to just to say it's the white working class and the alt-right at fault, that's wrong. There's too many people, and this applies to Orange County. This is a, a perfect place to make this argument. There's too many people who've been Republicans forever, and they still want to believe it's the party of Ronald Reagan. They need to recognize it's not. And there, there's more to politics than just lower taxes and less regulation. This is a fight for democracy itself. Capitalism can work in a lot of contexts. Capitalism works fine in communist China. It's, it's a capitalist country now. And people can get great returns on their investment in authoritarian dictatorships. But we don't want to live in that kind of country. And people on the Republican side they need to take back the Republican Party and make it the party that it once was. Um, we may be in a situation where Max Boot, you know, a, a well-known 
Republican intellectual has left the party, for example. He's, he's with other people like George Will saying, you know, the party that Trump's built has to burn to the ground. So it's a time of choice. And, and moderate, middle-income, upper-income Republicans who aren't racist and they know they're not racist have to look at what's going on right now and say, gosh, Joe Biden's not an extremist. People always want to yell the word socialism. There was a piece on TikTok the other night from Robert Reich and talking about Harry Truman saying the right always wants to call everything socialist and all these great government programs that Truman could name off in the uh, 1940s, 1950s, you know, that are totally accepted now. They were called socialist, like Medi and Medicare. Medicare by socialist. the 60s. Yeah. Right. You know, a lot of what Elizabeth Warren wants to do is like the New Deal 2.0. I mean, she grew up a capitalist. She was very much a capitalist. She still is. She believes in capitalism, but she doesn't trust a non-transparent Wall Street. Some people like Navarro, you know, he ran as a Democrat for Congress down in San Diego at one point. You know, he was one of my contributors at OC Metro. He used to write a couple columns for me, just like Hugh Hewitt. He used to talk about being a movement conservative, and I didn't quite understand what that was. But he, he's become somebody who will just defend, you know, whatever happens in the Republican Party. It, it's been hard for him to stand up against what's happened, and uh, that's, that's disappointing. Well, I, I want to challenge. We don't have a whole lot of time left here. I want to challenge, though, your thinking about where the conservatives are headed that I, and I'm still wanting to focus our attention on Orange County. I, I think this zero sum is baked in really deeply and that privilege is something that the construct of privilege is so deeply baked in that there, there's a lack of a willingness to see that giving up will float your boat. Giving to another entity in your society is that you will yourself prosper more. And we know that the results of the demographic support for Donald Trump in 2020 was an increase. White women voted from 53% supporting Trump to, in 2016 to 56% to in 2020. So I, I'm just thinking that, that people don't want to give up anything and they've been talked into that zero sum idea. So you can respond to that really quickly. And yeah, then I, would, I would just challenge that. I, I mean, one way to think about the whole Trump effect and what's happened to the country is to think of it as Prop 187, which was in California in the 90s, right? Pete right. Wilson was desperate for re-election. He was a moderate Republican, but he used race and anti-immigration with the Prop 187 measure against illegal immigration. And I, I was an editorial page editor up in Pasadena at the time. I got a ton of mail. Never saw so much mail. Well, the state got through that. Hispanics, Latinos responded by saying, we're going to go with the Democrats. So it was a disaster for the Republicans long term. Um, and we're bringing more with us. Right. right. But the state survived. And we are mentally in our state. We've accepted diversity. You know, whites are a minority now. We've got a Latino senator finally. And it's like, it's all good. It's like, you go through these nativist periods. I mean, all the kids that come here, the second generation are totally Americanized, right? And right. we've got so many people under 35 and 40 who are intermarried. I mean, Obama was an exception back in the early 60s to have a black dad from Kenya and a white mom from Kansas, right? But now 
all kinds of people were mixed up. And Kamala Harris is an example of that. And we got tons of Asian students and cosmopolitan students from all over the place at places like UCI. And so California is way ahead of the country. The problem is a lot of the country is still fearful because they haven't quite got there yet mentally and they- Well, that's the zero sum though. The fears have been stoked. And it's not a zero sum game because we're in a global competition. We want talented women to be in really good jobs and contribute and, and why should we have situations where, you know, Blacks are always threatened and some of them are, are in the ghetto. It's, it, it's crazy, you know, and it's, uh, it's a leftover of famous thing that W.E. Du Bois talked about was the psychic wage, you know, that racism pays a psychic wage to whites and people who aren't doing that well, they see, well, at least I'm not on the bottom of things. But a lot of the people that went to Washington, they're not working class whites. A lot of them are middle class and upper middle class folks. Absolutely. They're passionate about politics. The, the problem is that they got passionate about politics by following somebody who's a demagogue. I mean, we've got to say, look, this stuff, and we need Republicans to step up. The fact that Republicans are fearful now, they think that, whoa, my family might get attacked. Welcome to what the civil rights leaders did in the 60s. Well, welcome to organizers now. Welcome to a person of color stepping out of their home. Welcome to a child who could be vulnerable to a mass shooting at school. And that's been circulating all over social media. Now now you know our vulnerability. You're living it. Right, right. And we we don't want a country where anybody feels that way. It's crazy. And our leaders of the past would say this, you know, you got to, and that's what the strength of a guy like President Biden, is he understands you have to reach out and pull people together. Some people, it's just how their psychology is, are easily frightened. He will calm people down. I think we'll be in a different place six months from now because people will be amazed that Biden will be able to get the national government on top of the pandemic. You know, whether it takes six months or nine months or whatever, the national government will come in and make this happen now because we'll have somebody actually doing the job and he'll have a bunch of people in his cabinet that know what the heck they're doing and they're dedicated to making it happen. And that will help. I mean, if we could just ease back a little bit with the anti-government rhetoric, the zero sum. and Well, that's the prescriptive part I'd like to close this with. I would like a prescription for, I, I think you're being a bit facile about how we get out of this heavily stoked United society and that we're not going to break through those echo chambers that have set up this corrosive dialogue well, going here, on. The way I'd answer that is to say this, look, we can hype the size of the radical right. A lot of people that answer the thing about they don't believe Biden got elected, half of them don't really believe that. They just want to say that because they're upset. Trump's core, the right, right wing of the Republican Party, the Republican, you know, look, half the country is not political, half the country is. So that means you got a 25% in the Democratic Party and 25% of the total national population, the Republicans. There's a slice of that Republican part, you know, 10% of the country as a whole, that's pretty right wing. But we shouldn't exaggerate how many people are really right wing. And but their but their representation is, is yeah, very uneven. Have, They're we, overrepresented. Right. We need to have political we, structures. Right. We need to have Republicans step up and 
at least go back to the, the party of Reagan and McCain. But how, how, Kevin? I, I know it's the wish to have that, but uh, prescribing, how do we get there? Well, I think it's partially the business class is going to be key to this, right? Okay. The business class, they already had 200 companies saying we're not going to give money after what they saw. You know, they stepped up finally. And so I think businesses and white collar executive types who are in the Republican Party have to decide what kind of party do I want? The party of Lincoln's long gone. What kind of political parties do I want in this country? Right? If I don't agree with the Democrats, I've got to construct something. I have to put positive energy in. You know, the famous quote from Yates in World War II era about the evil people in society having passionate intensity. We need some passionate intensity by good people, and we've got to keep it up. I mean, we had passion and intensity. That's why Biden has the Senate. That's why Biden got elected by 7 million people. And we've just, it's going to be a process of work. I mean, I don't want to be fast off, but I, I don't want to, inf- I don't want to overhype how many people are on the alt-right in this country. There's just not that many. I mean, I've got a, I've got a cousin in Dallas who, you know, he's on the right and he likes conservative judges and he's against uh, abortion. And, and you can have those views, but you have to understand what's beneath that. If, you know, you have to get the party that's supporting those kinds of views reshifted more to the center and not having it being racist and not having it wanting to shred the power of national government because it just doesn't work. But Hayek is counting on your brother making that the focus of his voting behavior is right. making sure that that particular access uh, to abortion on demand is right. ended for all time. So uh, he's not, his body politic doesn't look any changed from 2020 onto the future years. Yeah, yeah. so let's, let's, we'll have to figure it out. Like, look, I, I think the Democrats are in good shape going forward. We might be able to flip Texas one of these years. We got Arizona, we got Georgia. We need to keep those two if, from a liberal point of view. From the Republican point of view, it's like they picked up these Latino voters in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, right? It's like, okay, why can't we pick up some more Latinos? That's, that, that is something that Republican activists, I'm sure in Orange County, they went after Asians, right? They've got, you know, one of, one of the members of Congress is Asian. Um, two, two right? are. Two are. So, you, so, you know, the idea of making it a white party, you know, Californians know that that's, that's not the way forward. Um, and some in the Republican Party understand that's not in the way forward. So when the Republican Party becomes more cosmopolitan, right, and we step away from the toxicity of Trump and we get somebody else, that party can evolve. So, you know, I, I remain optimistic. It's just, it's a difficult thing. It's brought, the radicalism of the right has been brought out by the storming of the Capitol. People just are, you know, horrified that something like that could happen. And for people to think they could storm the Capitol and they're, they're defending the founders is ridiculous. Thomas Paine said something important. He talked about government as evil and common sense. But when he wrote that book, the government he was talking about was monarchy. That's all that existed then, right? In his second really important book, Rights of Man, he said, if government comes from the people, we can do whatever we want. If we want to set up, and he was a century and a half ahead of everything else, He said, we should take care of old people. We should have a social security system and we should take care of widows with young kids. And we can do that with progressive taxation. He said that in 1790, right? It makes perfect sense to us today. And and hardly anybody 
on the Republican Party would say, yeah, we should get rid of Social Security and we should get rid of, you know, helping, helping widows with kids. And Paul Ryan went to college in part because his dad had died of a heart attack and, you know, that benefit existed because of, 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 of FDR. So there has to be a lot of talk, a lot of listening to the other side. There has to be a big talk about racial justice and doing more to kind of get past our, our prejudice and systemic racism that's built into things. But if we, you know, Biden's got the right approach, you know, he's been banging away at this stuff for a long time. And, and we know when we look at American heroes, um, we go through tough times where we can, we can get through this, this period as well. Well, I, I hear you're waxing optimistic. I, I, mean, it's I a, think it's, it's a it's, much, much taller order. I think pain had nothing period. like the headwinds that we're dealing with now. They had their headwinds. In the 18th century, they had their headwinds. But I think there are huge forces. And I think not one genie. I think like a flock of genies came out of the bottle on January 6th, 2021. And there are labels and symbols and reinforcements that are going to reinforce retro thinking that well, scares the- I, I understand that, but I'll, I'll, I don't want to be Pollyannish here though. Because the Democrats won the House and the Senate and the presidency, with Merrick Garland, we're going to have a Justice Department that wins, that runs and acts like a Justice Department again. And we're going to have a Homeland Security Department that actually addresses domestic terrorism. They're going to go after these white zealots. The white supremacists have had free game because Trump's thought of them as, you know, part of his base. That's not going to be the case. Watch what happens over the next two years. It's going to take time. But, you know, the people that want to foment violence and who want to do you know, subvert the government and to attack the government literally and attack people literally, they're going to be rooted out. They don't have carte blanche anymore. And, and they sort of did with during the Trump administration. I will leave it at that. I want to thank you, Kevin, for being on Digging Out. There was, there's a lot of debris and I'm I'm not sure how much, how deep the trough is at the end of this segment, but I thank you so much for being on Digging Out today. Oh, thank you, Claudia. Appreciate it. My guest was Kevin O'Leary, journalist, writer, and member of the faculty at Chapman University. And his latest book out is entitled Madison's Sorrow, Today's War on the Founders and America's Liberal Ideal.